Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15 this morning. The last year or so we've been studying through this gospel and we come to a conclusion this evening, this morning, excuse me. Mark chapter 15. And we'll begin reading in verse 42. But before we do, I just want to make a couple comments before that. What we should recognize when we come to this account of the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ is that if the Holy Spirit wanted to, He could have very well just left for us one account of the resurrection. But instead, what you'll find is that in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a record of this great event. And each of them gives a somewhat lengthy account of this resurrection. Well, why would each person record it? Wouldn't just one be sufficient? I think it's important to have multiple um, multiple records. Not that just one would be insufficient, but people generally don't believe the resurrection. In the first century, people tried to cover it up when it first happened. In fact, the guards and the Pharisees knew that it did indeed happen. And we find in at the end of Matthew chapter. 27, that they made up a story that said that the body was stolen, that in fact he did not, or that they were saying that he did not raise from the dead, that supposedly his body had been stolen from the tomb. And so in the first century, it's important to have an accurate record, and in this case, there was actually four records left for them. But I would say that in the 21st century, there are still skeptics with regard to the resurrection. They ask, was the resurrection real? Did it really happen? And there are countless books and articles that claim that the resurrection was a big hoax. And so the Gospels help to give us an account, a record of what really did happen. It tells about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think they do this because They want to show, just explain in a narrative form, just a normal form, that yes, indeed, He did die, and yes, He was raised from the dead, and the women did go to the correct tomb when they went to search for Him. Let's begin reading in Mark chapter 15, verse 42, and we'll read down through chapter 16, verse 8. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. 
Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This morning we'll see that the promised Messiah, this promised one of the Old Testament, is the resurrected Lord. We see in verses 42 through 45 of chapter 15 that Jesus is indeed dead. The setting begins in verse 42 that it says, When evening had come, it was the preparation day. And Mark, knowing that his readers probably didn't understand what that was since they were not Jews, they were Gentile readers, he explains what that means, what the preparation day is. You see that there in the middle of the verse. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath or the day before Saturday. And this was important that uh, Mark records the, the days of what's going on, that Jesus died on Friday and He was raised on the third day, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. And um, Mark records this for his readers because it's important to understanding what was going on in their day, in their society. You see, for the Jew, they were not supposed to leave bodies up on the cross on the Sabbath day. Remember, the Sabbath was a day that was supposed to be holy. And according to the laws in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, they were supposed to take these bodies down on the Sabbath. And uh, so they would do this when the Sabbath began. And, and if you remember anything from what we've talked about in our study of Mark, the Sabbath didn't begin at midnight on Saturday. It actually began sundown on Friday because the Jewish day actually began with night. It actually began at sundown of the previous day and then it goes till the end of light on the far, on the following day. So it had to be down by 6 p.m. basically on Friday night. Now Jesus had been laying or, or hanging on that cross for most of that day. Remember, He began hanging on the cross at 9 a.m. on Friday morning and He hung there for at least six hours. And so now the Jews are recognizing they need to get this body down off the tree. What we find happens though is that this man Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, comes and asks for the body. This man is a man who we find out in verse 43, he's a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's just another way to say that he was a member of the Jewish religious leaders. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was also a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Or as Matthew says, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And so what what we have here is a member who is respected and influential and according to John that he was very wealthy in order for him to purchase this tomb. Uh, he couldn't just go and just grab a, an empty spot in a rock. He, he actually purchased this for himself or for Jesus. And um, unlike the rest of the Jewish leaders who had, remember, gathered together and tried to bring all these claims against Jesus. They said that he was a blasphemer. Then they brought him before the Romans, Pilate, the governor there, and said that he was trying to usurp the government. 
Instead of doing all that, uh, Joseph of Arimathea apparently was absent because Luke tells us that he did not consent with their plan to crucify this man because he recognized, along with Nicodemus, another another, uh, Jewish leader, that Jesus was innocent. And so he, along with Nicodemus, grab the body. Off, they take the body off the cross and they take it to this tomb. But before they do that, he has to ask for, for permission. And notice what happens at the end of verse 43. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now for Joseph, this was very risky. Excuse me. <laughs> My voice got a little bit louder there. <clears throat> Very risky because he is identi- he's identifying himself with someone who has been charged of some serious crimes. He has been charged of blasphemy and he's charged of high treason. Blasphemy by the Jewish religious leaders and high treason that, that he is usurping Caesar, that he's trying to stand up against Caesar but because he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so he's got these very highly... Uh, uh, despicable crimes that are laid up against his name. And so for Joseph to come to Pilate and say, I want to take his body down, he is identifying himself with Jesus. It's fascinating to think that Joseph was willing to do this because none of his disciples were even willing to do this, were they? Remember when the, the shepherd is struck, Jesus said, the sheep will be scattered. My followers will, will go away, but that's okay. They're going to come back to me. It's not okay that they went away, but but I have a plan for them. And even though his disciples who had followed him for these three years were not willing to take this body, Joseph was. He was willing to identify himself with Christ. And so he had to gather up courage to stand before Pilate. And so we too must act boldly on behalf of Jesus, even when it doesn't seem to be very popular in verse 44, Pilate orders the soldiers to see and to check to make sure that Jesus is dead. Verse 44 reads, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Okay, The idea that we get in this translation is that Pilate wondered. He's thinking, I wonder if he's dead. But the word wondered there is actually the same word that's used for amazed in verse 5. Look up to chapter 15, verse 5. When Pilate was questioning Jesus and laying all these accusations against Him that the the Pharisees had brought, look what Pilate does in verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Okay, So so Pilate is amazed. The the idea there in verse uh, 44 is that Pilate was amazed that he would be dead by this time. Remember, he'd only been on the cross for six hours. And so what's happening here is not that I wonder if he's dead by now. What he's saying is, why would someone be asking me for the body right now? It's only been six or seven hours. Why would anybody want to take the body down? It's not dead yet. Crucifixion hasn't been finalized. And so that's why some of the other translations have it better. The NIV says Pilate was surprised that he was dead by this this time. Or but that he was dead by this time. Now, why would Pilate be surprised? Why would he he be amazed that the body would be dead? Well, crucifixion was a very torturous execution. 
It was the worst form of execution at that time that the the Romans could come up with. Uh, they didn't come up with it themselves. They borrowed it from someone else who had developed it. But they tried out all sorts of different torturous uh, executions and they loved this one the best. Because it was the most humiliating for a person to be crucified and it also took a very long time. A person would hang on the cross and they would often often die from suffocation or or from hunger or from thirst. and um, And so they would be hanging on that tree for a very long time. In fact, two or three days was the average amount of time that it would take for a person to die. So that's why Pilate is now amazed. How could he be dead by this time? And so what does he do? Verse 44 tells us that he sends the centurions to see if he, in fact, was dead. And what they would do in order to ensure that these these criminals were dead, would they, they would break their legs because hanging on the cross, they had to pull themselves up to take a breath. And so if they didn't have their legs to help push them up, then it would make it a lot harder for them to breathe. Eventually they would suffocate and die. So they did this, the centurions did, to both of the criminals on either side of Jesus. But to Jesus, they came to Him and were about to break His legs. But instead, as you know, they found that He already was dead. And so they pierced Him with a sword in His side and... Um, and it pierced through to his heart, and they recognized that, in fact, he was already dead. Well, Pilate finds out about this, and notice what he does in verse 45. And, as, and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. This was unusual for Pilate or any Roman governor to give away the body. Someone who had been convicted of high treason they wanted to make sure that this was the most humiliating thing for that type of criminal. And so what they would do is after a person like that would die, someone who died of high treason, they would let them rot on the cross. And they would let the birds pick at them and, uh, and eat away at their flesh. And so for Pilate to give it away to especially a non-family member was, was uh, very amazing. And... Um, and so when we talk about the resurrection, what a lot of people do, I said there's a lot of skeptics. There's both a lot of skeptics in the first century and a lot of skeptics even today. A lot of people do is they try to explain away the resurrection by saying that Jesus wasn't really dead. But there are several reasons why we know that in fact He was dead, that He wasn't comatose or maybe He was, he was uh, just a little bit cold when He was in the tomb and then when they opened up the when the stone rolled away, then, then uh, the warm air kind of helped revive him. No, in fact, he was dead, and we know for several, reason, for several reasons. One, Pilate releases the body. Pilate gave official confirmation that Jesus was dead. He would not have allowed Jesus to be, his body to be let go if he were not dead. Two, John recorded that, that they pierced his side with a sword and it went up through his heart and out poured blood and water which indicated that, in fact, he was dead. Three, all the Gospel writers record that he died. We see it in verse 37 of our chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And, and fourthly, we know that he died because of the centurion's claim in verse 39. When the centurion who is standing right in front of him, that is when Jesus died, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
So we have all of these proofs, I guess you could say, of why we know that Jesus did die. After he died, he was buried. This body, his body was handed over to Joseph in verses 46 and 47. Nicodemus comes along and helps him. We know from John chapter 19. He comes along and helps him with the body. And he takes him to this burial site in verse 46. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Matthew tells us that it was a new tomb, that no one had ever been laid here. There's no secret passageways, no no uh, trap doors or anything to make this uh, this apparent claim of resurrection a uh, uh, some sort of a ho- hoax. But it was a very expensive thing in order to buy a tomb. You had to buy one that had been excavated. You had to go. Uh, someone had to go in. Probably not Joseph. He probably paid somebody to do it. Had to go in and and carve out an area where the body could be laid. And we know that there was kind of a rock, uh, a bed made out of the rock there. Um, and uh, so, so Joseph paid for this. And, and in addition, he also had a stone rolled in front of the tomb and it was to seal the tomb so that it would keep out animals and unwanted robbers, grave robbers who would want to steal the body. And um, this stone that was rolled in front of the tomb was probably made of granite. It was about eight feet in diameter and about one foot thick. It rolled into on a groove just outside of the tomb, and it would roll down this groove into a a, uh, a little valley that would keep the rock there so that it wouldn't roll away or be easily moved back out of the way. It was on an incline so that once you rolled it into place, it would stay there. It wasn't designed to, to ever be moved again. And that's why the ladies are thinking, how are we going to get this thing moved out of the way? Well, we notice here at the end of chapter 15 that we have some spectators to this whole event. That is the burial of Jesus. They see exactly what happens. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. They were sitting opposite the grave watching Jesus be buried. Their eyes, you can imagine, didn't leave his body. They wanted to make sure that he actually made it into the tomb and that they were going to be able to find the right tomb when they got back. The tomb was in a garden not too far from the uh, the cross where he died. The reason that they watched where he was buried and they watched to make sure that, that he was in fact laid there was because they were going to come back later and anoint him. But the question you may ask is, why not anoint him now? Why not go and bring all the spices and the the uh, the different uh, perfumes in order to cover up the smelly smell of the decaying body? Why not do it now? Well, remember the Sabbath is almost coming upon them. It's late Friday night, and once it gets to sundown, six o'clock on the Sabbath, the Sabbath now begins. Once it gets to sundown on Friday, the Sabbath begins. And as a Jew, these ladies were not able to participate in any extraneous type work. They weren't allowed to travel for very long distances. And so they needed to be home and, um, and uh, making sure that they were uh, obeying the Sabbath laws. And so they probably didn't have time to anoint Him. They, they didn't even have the spices, we know, and the, uh, the things that they were going to use to anoint Him at this point. Well, 
we come to the end of chapter 15. And if this were the end of the book, if this were the end of the Gospel story, then we would have no hope. If chapter 16, verses 1-8 through were not written for us, we of all people would be most pitied because we would be serving a dead Savior. But I can tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, that the story does not end there that we do have hope because of chapter 16, verses 1-8. through See, after Jesus is buried, He is now visited by these two women and others we know from some of the other Gospels, but at least these two women, verses 1-3. through And first, they make preparation to anoint His body, verses 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was over, okay, that is Saturday, so now we're talking... Um, Saturday night, 6 o'clock probably, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they may come and anoint Him. Very early on in the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where, when the sun had risen. So when the Sabbath had ended, 6 o'clock on Saturday night, now they're free to go out and um, they're no longer under the Sabbath restrictions where they had to stay uh, within a certain distance of their house and they couldn't... Uh, couldn't buy anything, couldn't do any commerce on the Sabbath day. In fact, all the commerce was closed for Jews. Um, And so now it's Saturday night, 6 o'clock, and at the first opportunity they go out and buy these spices that that they need to anoint His body. What an amazing act of love that these ladies were willing to go to this decaying body that has been a day and a half now rotting by the time they get there Sunday morning it's been rotting in the tomb and they're willing to, to take and put spices on this decomposing body. In a hot climate, it certainly would not have been a uh, very uh, well-pleasing smell. Well, they think about their dilemma on their way. Verse 3 tells us that they ask themselves, what are we going to do? Looking up, they uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll, roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? The verb there is has the idea of they kept asking. They kept asking themselves, who's going to roll away this tomb? Why are we even going here? I mean, how are we going to get this thing moved? You see, they didn't know that there were guards placed in front of the tomb. That happened after they went back. The Pharisees set up guards to make sure that the, the stone was not rolled away. Of course, we know that it, in fact, was, and the guards could not stop it. And when they get there, they find, verses 4 and 5, that Jesus is missing. first thing they notice is that the stone is rolled away, verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Okay. How could a four-ton piece of rock be moved away from this tomb? I mean, how could this have possibly happened? We know that it happened based on Matthew chapter 28 because the that God caused the earthquake, at least the local one for that spot, to cause the angel of the Lord to move this stone away from the tomb. The guards were there to keep people away from the tomb and make sure that this body was not stolen. But obviously when this happened, the stone was removed and they saw these angels. Matthew tells us that they were struck with fear and fell as dead men. That is, they fainted. And um, so the guards were not a problem for the, for the ladies at all. They enter the tomb, verse 5, 
and they're confused because they were expecting to see Jesus there. Okay, that's kind of surprising that the, the stone is moved, but Jesus should still be in there. So let's go inside and see what happens. There's probably a low entrance. They would probably have to duck to get in there. And um, because it was early and the light of the day was just now shining, they probably were able to see just fine in there. When they came, they found that, that he was not there. Verse 5, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Where is Jesus? They must have been thinking. Mark records for us that there's this young man appearing there. And um, we know from Luke chapter 24 that this is an angel. In fact, there's actually two angels. This is the only one that's recorded here in Mark. But they are amazed. And Luke tells us that they bow their face down to the ground, recognizing that this is a creature from heaven. Creature, These angels, as in most of the scriptures, are often not seen. Remember, with Balaam, uh, he had to have his eyes open before he could see this angel standing in front of the donkey. Uh, Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of the servants to see the battlefield full of angels. They were there, but, but Elisha uh, was the only one that could see them. And when angels are seen, they're often mistaken for humans. That's why uh, it, it appears as a human. You remember from Genesis chapter 19 when the two angels come to Lot's house. They're mistaken for humans. And what we also know about angels is that God's glory often shines from them. And that's why they have this brilliant white robe. That The idea of that it just emanates with light from it. Notice what their message is in verse 6. And he said to them, that is this angel, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they have laid Him. Don't be amazed. Just because Jesus is not here, don't be amazed. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. We'll come back here to Mark. But Luke chapter 24 gives us a little fuller description of why they shouldn't be amazed. Luke chapter 24, remember I said each of the Gospel writers recorded this event. Each of them also emphasized different details. They all emphasized the fact that Jesus was raised, of course. But they also um, have different points of emphasis and that's why you can uh, find different things out about the resurrection by reading all four Gospels. Luke chapter 24, verse 5. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man, Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. The angel says, why do you seek the living one, that is, Jesus the Christ? Why do you seek the one who is living among the dead? This is not where he's staying. See, Jesus is alive. Why do you seek him among the tombs? And don't you remember what he had said to you? Verse 7, that the Son of Man, that Jesus would be delivered into the hands of sinners, but after thir- on the third day, that is, He would rise again. 
He was not going to stay dead. Don't you remember that He said this? And verse 8 says, then they remembered. See, up to this point, they were expecting to find Jesus still dead. And so that's why when they come into the tomb, they see that He's not there. They see this young man. They say, where is He? And the angel says, don't you remember what Jesus told you? That He would rise from the dead after the third day or on the third day. Turn back to chapter 16 because we see that this is not the end of the story, but that Jesus still has more for them. Chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, we see that Jesus plans to meet them. That the resurrected Lord plans to meet these ladies and the disciples. And so the angel gives them a message. Verse 7, But go, tell His disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see Him, just as He told you. Notice who the recipients of this message are to be. Go tell His disciples and Peter. Isn't that interesting that Mark records this here? Remember, Mark doesn't have a first-hand account of all these events, but he's recording what Peter had told him. And so much of this Gospel is Peter's eyewitness account. And so what Peter includes through the, the Gospel writer Mark is that the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now this is important because turn back to chapter 14, verse 27. Because notice what Peter says he would not do. And we'll see at the end of the chapter what he does in fact do. Chapter 14, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is exactly what the angel says in the tomb. Okay, Just like Jesus told you, He will go ahead of you to Galilee. So go tell the disciples and Peter. Notice how Peter responds here in verse 29. But Peter said to him, when Jesus said, when they strike me, the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. You're all going to fall away. Notice verse 29. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Peter promised that he would not deny Christ. And yet Jesus says, you will deny me. In fact, before the rooster crows two times, you're going to deny me three times. And that's in fact what happens. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of him. But again, he denied it. And so on. He denies a third time. Look at verse 72. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. So turn back to chapter 16 because I think the reason that 
the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter, is because he wants Peter to understand that even though you failed me, okay, this is a message from Jesus, even though you failed me, you are still going to be one of my followers. Okay, I am a forgiving God. And the knowledge that our Lord still has an interest in us, even though we often err, should increase our love for Him and serve to strengthen our faith and to serve to help us in future failure. That we're not going to be perfect. When we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we don't live perfect lives immediately, lives immediately, nor do we ever in this lifetime. So we need to recognize that even when we fail, if Jesus, if we are in Jesus, if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, then He will still lead us. We will still be His followers. And so the angel points out, go tell the disciples and Peter. What is the news that the angel gives? He says at the second part of verse 7 that He has risen from the dead and that He is going ahead of you to Galilee just as He had said. And then we see that these uh, ladies depart. Look at verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They were afraid. It says that they said nothing to anyone. Why such, uh, why such a statement here in chapter 16, verse 8? I think in order for us to understand this, we need to understand the last part of what you have recorded for you in your Bible, which is verses 9 through 20. Now, if you'll notice, verses 9 through 20 in your Bible is in brackets. See that at the beginning of verse 9, at the end of verse 20, there's brackets surrounding those verses. Now, if you look at the the uh, footnote that's in the margin of your Bible that's connected with verse 9, you should read something like what my Bible reads, and that is, later MMS, MSS, that's manuscripts, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. What that means is the Bible that you have in front of you is just a translation of the original, uh, which was written in Greek, the New Testament written in Greek. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Bible was not written in English. So what we have really is a translation of the originals. And verses 9 through 20 were not a part of the earliest manuscripts, Okay, the earliest autographs of the Bible, the, the it was written by Mark, and then it was copied, many copies. Not, they didn't have copy machines back in the first century, right? So they're just copying them all by hand. And as copies went out, people would add certain things, maybe because they thought something had been missing and so on. And I would suggest to you that verses 9 through 20 were not in the original uh, autographs of the Gospel of Mark. And the reason I say that is, is for several. One, they're not contained in the oldest manuscripts. That's what your footnote says. They're not contained in the earliest manuscripts, the ones that were closer to the beginning. And that's the ones you want to look at. You want to look at the ones that were closest to the original because after you make multiple copies and multiple copies, then what can happen is more and more uh, errors can, can creep in. So it wasn't in the earliest of manuscripts. And also, the, the oldest known commentary, which is from the 6th century, 
gives basically an explanation of all the verses in Mark all the way up till verse 8 of chapter 16 and then it stops. So that leads me to believe that, that verses 9 through 20 were not a part of the, the original gospel. And then also, if you were to look at all the language, the vocabulary, the different things that are discussed in verses 9 through 20, they're not consistent with what Mark has been speaking about. It's not consistent with his type of vocabulary. So for all those reasons, I would say that verses 9 through 20 are not in the original. So what do we do with this passage? Okay, we have it here in our Bibles. We've read it often, I'm sure. I would suggest to you that you don't cut it out of your Bible. Okay, take some scissors, cut that little section out because that's not a part of the original. The editors put it in there because they saw that the early church actually accepted it. That is, the first couple centuries widely accepted this as a part of Mark's Gospel. So instead of cutting it out, I would say to you, read it with caution. Read it with caution. Uh, the reason that it's in brackets is because the editors are not sure that it's part of the original or not. And so I would say read it with caution. Understand that, that uh, the rest of Scripture ultimately interprets true Scripture. And so based on that, I, I explained all that to you because I think it's important for our understanding of verse 8, which is I, where I think the Gospel ends. The Gospel ends at verse 8. And he ends it very abruptly, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He doesn't tell anything about how the message spread or anything like that. Let's read verse 8 again. They went out, the ladies, and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. For Mark to end his gospel like this should not be surprising to us because he began it very quickly too, didn't he? He didn't start it at the beginning of Jesus' life at His birth. Other Gospels record His birth. But Mark doesn't. He starts in His ministry and He just starts right up. And He often goes from one thing to another. He, his favorite word seems to be the word immediately. Things happen quickly. So He's just moving from one thing to, to the next, trying to explain all these great truths about Jesus. And, um, and also the idea that people were amazed is consistent throughout the Gospel. You have all these different events that take place when Jesus is transfigured, when Jesus does all these miracles, when He teaches in such a way of authority. Um, you have all these, this amazement that's coming from the people. So let me read for you an explanation from a commentary that, that I found helpful. He says about this ending that Mark had a definite purpose in his ending. He wanted an open-ended ending to indicate that the story was not complete but was continuing on. He wanted the readers to continue the story in their own lives by stating that the women told no one. He challenged his readers to assume the responsibility of telling the good news to everyone. He showed that the Christian faith doesn't rest on signs and miracles or even appearances of the risen Lord since he does not record any. So when we finish this Gospel in verse 8, we're, we're left with the question, well, did the ladies end up telling anyone? Because Mark records for us up until that point that they were so afraid and astonished that they told no one. What would happen if they told no one? Would we know about this event at all? I mean, what if they never went and told the disciples? Would the disciples ever come back and find that the Lord was risen? Now, perhaps Jesus would have met with them anyway. But the point is, 
is that we know from Mark's Gospel that that, that question that we have hanging uh, because of verse 8, did they tell anybody, is answered for us with the very fact that we're reading the account of what happened, right? So the point is, they did tell people, and we are too as well. It leaves us with a challenge to continue to live and to witness for the Lord in the present and the future. Don't rest on your accomplishments, but continue on and continue to spread that message. Let me conclude by um, saying a few things about the resurrection. First, the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection is important because it proved that God accepted Christ's payment. When Christ paid for your sins on the cross, God proved that He accepted it when He raised Jesus from the dead. When He gave Jesus the keys to sin and death, that is, keys over sin and death, that He he was able to conquer them through the resurrection. That was the proof. The resurrection was the proof. And you see, the resurrection is vitally important to our own salvation because if Christ was not raised, then our faith would be in vain. I began by saying if, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And it's true because we're following a dead religion, but we're not following a dead religion. We're following a risen Savior. So we are not to be pitied. In fact, we boast in the cross. We take great pleasure in it. third reason that the resurrection is important is because if Christ were still dead, then He would still be paying for our sins. He would still be paying for our sins. But, but no, our Savior lives. He conquered sin and death through the resurrection. 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, Paul says that He brought life and resurrection through the Gospel. The resurrection shows that Jesus is Lord over all, including death. There's nothing that Christ cannot do. This is the Savior that we serve. Well, the resurrection is really the climax of Mark's Gospel. Jesus had come from the very beginning and shown His authority and teaching. They were amazed. How can this man teach like this? He showed His his authority over demons. He cast out demons. He showed His authority over sickness, illness, raising people up to walk and making the blind see. He had authority over death. He made people rise from the dead. But then in the second half of Mark's Gospel, we see that although He had this authority, He still suffered, didn't He? That Jesus was rejected he was rejected by his own people, betrayed by one of his own followers, crucified for something that he didn't do. And the resurrection declared that Jesus had power over death. You see, it goes back to that authority that we saw at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Jesus has authority over all things. And although it meant that he would have a time of suffering, he still ultimately conquered death. And for us, what that means is this. Because you have faith in Jesus Christ. You have the authority, the power, the privilege to be a son of God, a child of God. But just because that you are in Christ doesn't mean that you won't have to suffer. In fact, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to suffer. I mean, if our Savior Himself had to, then why would we not as well? Why would people not persecute us for standing up for Him? 
all of us are going to die one day. And all of us will be judged for what we've done here on this earth. How will you stand before Jesus Christ on that day? Will you rest on what, what types of works you have performed for Him? Will you rest on all the times that you went to church or performed certain spiritual acts? Or will you rest on the saving power of Jesus Christ alone, recognizing that there is nothing that you can bring before God and offer to Him? I mean, it's the God of the universe. What could He possibly want from you? He has no needs. You can offer nothing to Him except for your relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, you and I are condemned to an eternal death because of our sin. We don't deserve eternal life. We never can earn eternal life. We can't do enough things in order to say, God, here, you have to give me eternal life because we can't. We're sinners. We hate God. We're we're enemies of His. The only way that we can be accepted before God is if God accepts the payment of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that's why Jesus died. See, Jesus was completely innocent. He did nothing wrong. He obeyed all of the Father's laws and disobeyed none. And as a result, He stood in your place. He stood in my place, taking upon Himself the wrath, that is, the eternal death that you deserved. He took it upon His shoulders, all the guilt and the shame that you should have borne, the death that you should have died, was taken upon Himself. And all you need to do, the Scriptures tell us, is to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that as we read today, God raised Him from the dead. If you do that, then the Scriptures tell us that we will be saved, that you will be saved from the wrath to come. What a great Savior we serve. We don't serve a dead Savior still paying for our sins. He's already paid in full your sins. All you need to do is repent of your sins, turn from them, and turn to Christ, believing that He is enough to satisfy God's wrath. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, You know the hearts of each person here. And You know if there are those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. There's lot, there are lots of things that we can put our trust in. We can put our, our trust in our wealth or our resources, our family history, our job, our possessions, our knowledge, perhaps even some of our good works. But as You tell us in Your Word, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before You because we... If we have sinned in one area, we are guilty of the whole law and we're deserving of an eternal death. And yet we know from the Scriptures, as we've just learned this morning, that You have provided a way for us to have life. That is, eternal life. And we recognize that there is a life to come. That there is another life and and that that life is worth living for, that eternal life. If we choose not to follow Christ in this life, if we are ashamed of Him in this life, then 
as he said to his disciples, then he will be ashamed of us on the day of wrath when all are judged. Lord, we don't want to stand under your judgment. Who can stand under it except for Jesus Christ? And he's done that. So I pray that if there are anyone, if there are any people here who do not know Jesus Christ, they don't know how to have that eternal life that is promised for us in the Scriptures, that they would see the weight of their own sin and the love of our Savior, that they would turn from their sins and obey the Gospel, that they would follow in faith and believe that Jesus Christ is enough. There's nothing we need to add to it, but that you accept Instead of perfect righteousness, which we cannot do, you accept perfect righteousness in our place, which Jesus alone could do. So I pray that you would give grace and eyes to see. I pray for those of us here who have trusted in Jesus Christ that we would stand up and be bold on behalf of Jesus Christ like, like Joseph was. I pray that you would help us not to grow weary in following after You, but that we would constantly reflect on this resurrection and this Savior that we have. Thank You for Your love for us in providing Jesus Christ. There's no greater way that we could see Your love than in seeing Him being laid down for us. He was crushed so that we would not have to be. We praise You for that and pray for Your grace as we respond now to Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.